If you're visiting with us today, you need to know that we've been in a series of messages. If you've been on vacation in a way, uh, you've missed the last two Sundays. We've been in a series of messages titled, Who's Your One? Who's Your One? It's a series designed to remind us that every Christian has a God-given assignment to make disciples of non-Christians. When our Lord Jesus Christ was asked what's the greatest commandment ever given, he said this. He said, without hesitation, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, meaning the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The most loving thing that you can do for your lost neighbor is to share the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it. If you saw someone starving to death and had some food, would you be too timid to offer them the food that you had if you knew it would save their life? If you saw someone thirsting to death and you had some life-saving water, would you be too embarrassed to offer them something to drink if you knew it would save their life? See, the subtitle of today's message is this, The Importance of One. The Importance of One. Our human tendency is to minimize the importance of one simply because one is such a small number. We in America especially like big numbers, except when they're in the ledger of the taxes. We like most things big. We drive big cars and big trucks. Uh, we like big houses. We like big screen TVs. We love our big phones with the bigger, larger screen. We can't get enough of our big, fat paycheck when we wish it was fatter. I think it was John Rockefeller, one of America's richest businessmen a hundred years ago, who asked, who was asked by a reporter, just how much is enough? And he famously responded without hesitation, just one dollar more. Just one dollar more. Well, what is the value of just one dollar? Well, for one billion people in the world, that's one day's wage. They live on just one dollar a day. A billion people live on one U.S. dollar a day. The importance of one, just one. How much is one soul worth to you? What's the price of one soul? Priceless, right? Because every soul is made in the image of God, and we are each bearers of that image, the Imago Dei. The Bible often makes reference to the importance of a single person or a single thing. For example, there's the pearl of great price, the one great pearl of great price. Then there's the one lost sheep, and then the widow's one lost coin, and the one wayward son known as the prodigal son. It was just one, but that one son caused the father to have a heartache 
until his son returned. And so this principle of one is seen, and the importance of one is seen throughout the scriptures, and yet the disciples of Jesus too often overlook the power and the importance of one. One invitation to church. One invitation to Bible study or growth group. One message of the gospel. One neighbor, one friend, one co-worker, one classmate. Can you name just one person who has come to Christ, been baptized and added to the church because God used your one influence, your salvation story, your tender, loving, persistent witness that has led them to faith in Christ. Just, just one, one precious, formerly lost soul. Can you think of one? If you can't think of one, the question for us today is, does that concern us? If we've been a Christian for any length of time and yet we have not been so concerned with the salvation of one to the point where we have shared our testimony, we have invited that one, we have prayed for that one salvation, then the question is, does that concern us? It should. And the reason it should is because you and I were made for that mission. We were saved to be a loving witness for Christ. You say, how is that possible? Well, you see, the gospel makes that possible. I've shared with you already, in case you need the reminder, don't get any ideas that we, in and of ourselves, can save anyone. It is, that is an impossibility. That is not our job, our responsibility is not to save anyone. We cannot save anyone, but we are called to be a loving, persistent, convincing witness to others. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And the Apostle Paul says that he's not ashamed of that powerful force for salvation, and neither should we be ashamed of that gospel. Let's take a look at the Gospel of John where we find the repetitious cycle of one disciple of Jesus introducing another one to the Savior. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1 beginning in verse 40. The Gospel of John chapter 1 beginning in verse 40. The Bible says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, come and see, 
said Philip. Look at verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, did you notice the word one in the text? It's it stated and implied several times in our text. Now, when you and I learn to the importance of one, three things are going to happen inside of us. When we learn the importance of one, three attitudinal shifts will happen inside of us. First of all, we will become intentional in our witness. Secondly, we will become accountable for our witness. And then third, we will become humble in our approach to witnessing. Let's see if we can find these three attitudes in these disciples. Look again with me at verse 40 of John's Gospel, chapter 1. Verse 40. There's so much that we can learn in just this one verse. But first, a little background for better understanding. The man named John, referenced in verse 40, is the man also known to us, many of us, as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Earlier in chapter 1 of our text, we learned that Andrew was one of John's disciples. And as John pointed out Jesus to the crowds and testified about him, saying that he is the Messiah, Andrew and another unnamed disciple decided to follow Jesus. Now notice our word in verse 40. Andrew was one of the two who heard what John said and who followed Jesus. Now check it out. John the baptizer was one man. One prophet of God. Now he preached to many and he baptized many, which is why he got the moniker John the Baptist. But here the Bible zeroes in on one of the two who heard what John said, believed what John said, and followed Jesus. Verse 41. What did Andrew do and when did he do it? The Bible says the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon Peter. Now that takes intentionality. And it seemed a matter of urgency as well for Andrew. It was a first priority, first importance. The very first thing that Andrew did after meeting Jesus was to intentionally find someone else that he could bring to Jesus. And Andrew intentionally chose his brother, Simon, which who Jesus later named Peter. Now, if you and I are going to be faithful witnesses, if we are going to reach our one for Jesus, we have to be intentional. It simply won't happen by itself, which is the reason why many of you, maybe most of you, have never led someone to faith in Christ, because you have not been intentional. This has not been a priority for you. And that's why we printed up these bookmarker cards and and you'll, you'll get later today a prayer journal at the end of the service that go along with this card. And so the way this works is you, you put the name of the one that God has put on your heart that needs to know the Lord. And you fold it and rip it in half. And then you take that and you put it on the cross like these that have already been turned in in the last couple of weeks. And then you keep the bottom portion with the person's name 
and you begin to daily pray for that one, claiming those scriptures for them. And, and then every day, I want you to begin to use your prayer journal as a daily prayer guide, praying through the selected scriptures and believing God for the salvation of your one. And then you've got to be intentional. You've got to be intentional about creating an opportunity to meet with your one and to share your salvation story and to learn and listen from them as well. You know, unbelieving people have a lot to teach us. Because as you know, the church is not perfect, Christians are not perfect, and so they have a lot to teach us. And so we don't just go wagging our finger in their faces and, and impressing upon them, you know, repent and believe, or you're going to hell, that's not the approach. But it's to create a dialogue, a winsome dialogue that helps to learn even as you're teaching and sharing your story and your faith and inviting them to investigate Christ and the claims of the Bible for themselves. We are to go as learners. And so you've got to be intentional because unless you and I are intentional about a witness, we simply will not do it. One preacher, John the Baptist, preached to many, baptized many. And then our text puts an emphasis on the two who heard John, believed him, and followed Jesus. And then, of the two, one, just one, named Andrew, went and found his brother, Simon Peter. Just one brother. Now think about that. What about the other brothers and sisters? In those days, Jewish people liked to have large families for several reasons. And so it is likely that Andrew had another, other brothers and sisters. And, and would have loved for his whole family to follow Jesus, right? He seems so excited. Why did he only choose one? Let's get real. Sometimes it's hardest to share Christ with family. Right? I mean, you've got history with family. And it's not all good history. You know all their junk. They know all your junk. And sometimes there is unresolved conflict which leads to animosity or jealousy or just plain hard feelings with family. And so maybe that's why Andrew only went to find Simon Peter. Maybe Peter was his favorite. Uh, they just got along and saw eye to eye on everything. And we don't know for sure because scripture doesn't tell us, but we can imagine that, right? Just thinking about our own family dynamics. So how important was Andrew's one? Well, first of all, because Peter became a follower of Christ, he was one less person to populate eternity without Christ, namely hell. But secondly, look how God used Peter. He was, it was Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, who stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people were saved, baptized, and added to the church. It wasn't Andrew who did that, it was Peter. It was Peter whom God used to pen two epistles of the New Testament, both of which bear his name. There's no epistle written by Andrew, although Andrew was the one who brought Peter to Christ. Interestingly, Andrew, whom God used to lead his brother Peter to Christ, is not even mentioned again in any significant role in Scripture. And so we don't know much else about him or how else God may have used him. 
How many of you know, have ever heard of a guy named Billy Graham? Anybody ever heard of Billy Graham? He's going to heaven now to receive his rewards, but it is incredible how God used that one man to preach the gospel to millions, hundreds of millions of people that are in heaven because of his faithful, persistent witness and preaching around the world. But how many of you know Mordecai Ham? Not many. See, he's the man that God used to preach the gospel in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934, the night Billy Graham went forward to follow Jesus. And how many of you know Brady Wilson? I don't see any hands. Brady Wilson was the guy that God used, who was a friend of Billy Graham, that winsomely, charmingly convinced him to go to the meeting, which his parents had invited him to go. And he says, no, I'm not going. I don't want anything to do with it. He was 16 years old. And he said, that's just a show, and I'm not interested, and I'm not going. But Brady Wilson convinced him to go where his parents couldn't convince him to go. And the reason he went was an alternative, ulterior motive, because he, he said by his own biography, Billy Graham writes that I, I went to go see a fight because there were some students that were protesting, are going to show up at the meeting, the evangelistic meeting, and protested this preacher who was calling out some sin of these high school students. And so the students got together and said, we're going to go protest this preacher. So Billy Graham said, I love a fight. I'm going to go be in the front row of a fight. Instead, he got saved, and the rest is history. But you would never know about Grady Wilson, who brought Billy Graham to the meeting that Mordecai Ham preached, and Billy Graham got saved. And all we know is Billy Graham. What's the importance of one? Do you see it? Never underestimate the importance of one, one single solitary soul. See, when you and I learn the importance of one, three attitudinal shifts will take place within us. First of all, we'll become more intentional in our witness. But secondly, we will become more accountable to Christ and to each other for those who are lost. Look at verses 43 to 46. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, hey, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, come and see, said Philip. Come check it out for yourself, dude. And then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, verse 49. I want you to notice something I've never noticed before studying this text. Our Lord Jesus does not exempt himself from the mission that he gave to his disciples. Do you see it? The Bible says that when Jesus decided to leave the region of Galilee, he himself found Philip and asked Philip to follow him. Actually, Jesus really didn't ask Philip. He voluntold him. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You kids ever been voluntold? The... He didn't, he, he, the Greek word used for, when Jesus says, follow me, the Greek verb form of the word follow is in the imperative, which means it is a command. Jesus went out and found Philip, and he commanded him, come, follow me. Very interesting. 
Now, although Jesus is the source of the mission and he's the primary proponent of the mission, he's also a participant in the mission. He not only tells us the what and the why and the how, but he also shows us by example. What a leader. What a leader we have in the Lord Jesus. It's as if our Lord Jesus holds himself accountable to, the, to practice what he preaches. There are a lot of parents and preachers who don't practice what they preach. They're good at telling other people what to do. They just don't want to live by their own rules. Right? We all have seen parents and preachers like that. They're good at telling other people what to do and how to do it. They're just not interested all the time in doing what they are telling other people to do. We call that hypocrisy. There's no hypocrisy in Jesus. Now we know from other passages of Scripture that Jesus, who is God, the Son, was accountable to God the Father. And so, even Jesus does not exempt himself from the accountability that we ourselves are to have with each other and with him. Let's hurry on to verses 44 and 45. John gives us a little more background about the disciples by telling us that they were all from the same town of Bethsaida. When you visit Israel, you can go to the ruins of this small fishing village to the northeast of the lake shore of Galilee. Matter of fact, the name Bethsaida literally means house of fish. It's like Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus, the bread of life, was born in the town called House of Bread. And now Jesus is here fishing for men in the town called House of Fish to make fisher men, fishers of men. No coincidence in them. And so these men most likely all knew each other before they knew Jesus. And of course, some were brothers in the same family. And did you notice what Philip did after Jesus found him and he decided to follow Jesus? What did he do? The Bible says Philip went out and he found Nathaniel and encouraged him to follow Jesus. But Nathaniel was not so easily convinced like the others. He raised objections. He had a negative reaction because of his prejudiced view of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Have you ever had someone negatively respond to your invitation to come to church or to join you in a Bible study? You ever heard someone who immediately sort of put up a wall of objection to your conversation about Jesus or spiritual things? See, many people are suffering from what we call church hurt. Some priest or pastor or rabbi has hurt their feelings because of what they said or did in the name of religion. We've all, if we're paying attention, we've all seen the sexual scandals of pedophilia in the church, whether it's the evangelical church or the Catholic church. We've all seen the financial scandals. And so people, rightly so, are ticked off when they see that kind of, that level of hypocrisy and damage that is done in the name and by those who are to proclaim holiness and to live holiness. And instead they are themselves falling into sin and perpetuating sin and covering it up and all of that. So many people have legitimate hurt 
and offense by the church or people in the church. That causes them not to want to have anything to hear or anything to do with faith, religion, Jesus, Bible, church. It's hypocrisy. And we ought to be ashamed of it and we ought to repent of it. So what do you do when you encounter objections to the church or the gospel of Jesus Christ? First of all, we shouldn't be surprised when people are objecting to spiritual conversation. We should not be surprised. Instead, we should expect them, those objections to come, and we ought to be ready with some answer. That's why the Bible says to be ready in season and out of season to defend the faith. And so there are ways to deal with objections. Sometimes it's appropriate to agree with their objections and to humbly apologize on behalf of the church or church leaders for our sins. In Philip's situation, he was ready. Philip basically said to Nathaniel, look, don't judge a book by its cover. Come and see for yourself. Come check it out for yourself. Not everybody from Nazareth is like what you think. And the same is true for those of us in the church. Not every preacher is a philanderer. Not every deacon or, or elder is stealing money. Not every, you know what I'm saying? Right? But the danger is to generalize and once you have been pained by someone or something, you generalize and think everybody is like that. Everybody is doing this. And it's just a nature of who we are as human beings and our tendencies to do that. Not Philip. Philip was ready with an answer to come check it out. And by the way, Philip's name incidentally means lover of horses. When we named our son Philip, who was here at the piano this morning, it was not because of the meaning of his name, it was because of the character, the content of the character of this guy. This man in our text, he was a charming evangelist. And look how it ended for Nathaniel, the one to whom he was witnessing. Verse 49, Nathaniel made an astonishing declaration. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. John the Baptist was accountable for Andrew. Andrew was accountable for Simon Peter. Jesus took accountability for Philip. And Philip was accountable for Nathaniel. Incidentally, do you know what Nathaniel name means? It means gift of God. And how precious that he had received God's incredible gift of life in Christ. This man named the gift of God found the incredible gift of Christ that day. And so the question is, will you and I take accountability for our one? Just one. Will you take accountability for your one? I believe we, we will have to give an account for what we did with the Great Commission someday. It's not the great suggestion. It is a commandment of Christ to go and to make disciples. And so what if we learn to hold each other accountable for our one by regularly asking each other, hey, how's it going with your one? I've been praying for your one. And I'm not talking about guilting each other, but simply encouraging each other in this important part of our lives in Christ. Instead of only 
talking about the bears and the bulls and the cubs and the weather in Chicago, what if we also started talking and praying with each other about the one that God has put in our hearts? Maybe, just maybe, that would help us fulfill another commandment of Scripture to stir one another on toward love and good deeds. What better love and more good deeds could there be than sharing the love of Christ with someone, someone who's heading to a Christless eternity? Finally, as we learn the importance of one, we will not only adopt the attitude of intentionality and accountability, but also of humility. That's the final point. So you can't really follow someone unless you're humble enough to do so. You see, the person you are following might be going somewhere that you don't want to go. He might be going in a direction that you don't want to go. She might be going at a place, at a pace that you don't like too fast or too slow for you. The one you're following might ask you to do something that you don't want to do. Or maybe you don't mind doing it, but just not right now when he wants you to do it. Followership is hard, isn't it? The first century disciples clearly understood what it meant to follow Jesus. It meant taking a posture of humility, deferring to Jesus, and adopting his mission and his way of life. It meant prioritizing our lives around the teaching and the mission of Jesus. And whatever was important to Jesus became important to them. It meant that they had to recognize and repent of all the excuses as to why they were not following Jesus or why they could not follow Jesus. It meant totally depending on the Holy Spirit's power because he, we are not strong enough in and of ourselves to follow Jesus well or even to follow him at all. Let me list some possible excuses that the disciples may have had and see if any of them relate to you. Number one, spiritual laziness. You simply fail to obey the commands of Christ to make disciples. And whenever we fail to obey Christ often enough, here's what happens. In any area of our lives, our desire to share him with others decreases and we simply lose our motivation. Number two, spiritual syncretism or inclusiveness begins to happen. That's when we begin to believe that all religions are the same. They all lead to the same God, the notion that all roads lead to heaven, right? You just have to be a good person. You've heard people say that, right? If that notion is true, then why did Jesus have to suffer and die? If we can be a good person and following the religious teachings, we can just be good enough, then why did Jesus die? No. Jesus came to make us right with God and right with each other. And that is by faith in Him. And then as our faith is exercised, we learn to obey His teaching and submit to His way of life. And we are transformed. So it's not about spiritual syncretism or inclusiveness. You've got to repent of that idea. It's not biblical. And then third, the growing disbelief in hell. A number of years ago, a former pastor from Michigan named Rob Bell wrote a book basically challenging the clear doctrine of hell in the Bible. It became a bestseller because people would rather not believe in such a place because it's so horrifying and it is eternal. 
But this heretical idea lessens the urgency for believers to share Christ with lost sinners. And maybe you've heard people say this, well, I don't believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. What kind of a monster would that be? The answer is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. People go to hell as a result of exercising their own free will to rebel against God and to reject His loving, merciful, sacrificial payment for their sin made on the cross 2,000 years ago. Number four, busyness. We're all very busy people, aren't we? We don't like to be bored, and there are millions of things to fill our time, especially with the gadget now known as a smartphone in our hands. And so we can be busy, so if we don't prioritize our time to include sharing the gospel, we will never have time for what is most important. Ever heard the story of the professor who wanted to get across to his class how important it is to prioritize their time and to do the important things first. He was, he was teaching this class in uh, organizational uh, ethics and organizational behavior. <clears throat> so he had with him a table set up in the front of his classroom and there were, the table was covered with a black cloth. So he took off the first part of the cloth and revealed an empty, large, empty jar. A glass jar that everybody can see the contents of it, and the glass jar was empty. And he said, then he moved the cloth back a little bit further, he said, how many of you believe that all of these rocks will be able to fit into this jar, that I can fit all these rocks in the jar? Everybody thought, yeah, I think you can do it. So he picked up all the rocks and put them into the jar, and all the rocks. Then he asked the question, how many think that the jar is completely full? And everybody was looking like, yeah, that jar, that, you cannot hold another rock in that jar. But that's not the question he asked. He said, how many think the glass jar is completely full? Then he moved back another element on the table from the, the cloth that revealed some pebbles. And he took up a jar of pebbles and poured it into the jar with all the rocks. Kind of shook it and all the pebbles settled in. And he said, how many think the jar is full now? A bunch of people raised their hand. Then he went back to the table, pulled back the cloth, and there was a jar of sand. And then he poured the sand into the jar with the rocks and the pebbles and shook it, and all the sand filled up the jar. And then he said, how many think the jar is really full now? And more hands went up, but a few were still skeptical. And then he went to the final piece on this table, removed the black tablecloth, and there was a jar of water. And he poured that all into the jar with the rocks and the pebbles and the sand, and it all fit. And he said, here's the deal. You gotta put the big rocks in first. Because if you put in all the water first, it won't hold the sand and the rocks and the pebbles in If you put all the sand in first, it won't hold all the rocks and the pebbles in the water. If you put all the pebbles in first, there's no room for the rocks and the sand in. So you gotta put the big rocks in first. Moral of the story is this. Are you humble enough to prioritize the big rocks in life?
to say, Lord, I really do believe in you and I am your disciple. Therefore, I'm going to reorient my life and do the most important things. Be about the most important things first and then fit in all these other things that are incidental into the jar of my life. Sharing the gospel is one of those big rocks. And it is the reason why we're still here. It is the reason why once we got saved, God didn't just beam us up to heaven. Like you Trekkies like to see Captain Kirk say to Mr. Spock or whoever is up in the Starship Enterprise waiting to push the button to beam him up out of danger. The reason God didn't just beam us up when we got saved is so that we might be here as living witnesses, living testimonies. So that an invisible God can be seen by the visible church and how we act and how we live and what we share. And so let me ask you in closing, are you willing to be intentional? Are you willing to be intentional? Are you willing to be accountable to each other? And will we will all be accountable to God at Judgment Day? That's, there's no question about that. So we might as well get some practice in being accountable to each other here. And then finally, are you willing to be humble? To humbly obey Christ, to go wherever He sends you, to talk to those He appoints for you, to be sensitive to this still small voice that says, this is your one for today. Be bold, be filled with my love, and share your story. Open your mouth, say a word for Christ. Will you be humble enough to recognize and repent of all of your excuses up to this point, why you have not been obedient to the Great Commission in sharing the Gospel? If you're willing to be intentional, accountable, and humble, I believe God will honor your obedience, and you'll be amazed at the people God will put in your life may be saved. Who, he will use you so that they might enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's stand as we pray. Every head bowed and guide closed. This is God's time of invitation. Just consider the words to your heart today. Is there anywhere that you can see you've fallen short? The fact of the matter is we all fall short. It's part of being human. The good news is that's why we have Jesus. He empowers us. He forgives us and cleanses us and reinvigorates us to start again, to be refreshed and renewed in our commitment to follow Him. If you're here today and you are not sure that you have a home in heaven, that you have made peace with God, that you know for sure that when you die, you will live eternity with God in heaven. If you do not have that assurance, today we want to 
help you have that assurance. The ushers are going to be standing, or some deacons will be standing under that center arch to the your right in the back of the sanctuary. And there's a welcome center there. They'd love to talk with you and hear from you what your challenges are between you and God and where you think you might be in your relationship to Him and how you can have that assurance of salvation. Secondly, if you want to be baptized this summer, we have a baptism at the lake coming up. And you can see some details in the bulletin. Maybe you've trusted Christ, but you've never been baptized. You've never followed Christ in believer's baptism. You too should seek out a beacon under the middle arch in the back to your right. And they'll be glad to sign you up for the baptism class that precedes the baptismal service. We're going to have a wonderful picnic and it'll be a great time together on that Saturday in August. And then finally, who's your one? Would you be willing, if you haven't already done so, to fill out your card and to write a name on that card the good news of the gospel in conjunction with uh, 
many resources that are available to us from Washington to Springfield to City Hall here. So one per family, we take one and enjoy reading many of the great articles in that Catalyst magazine. Alright? Very good. Um, God bless you for being here. Just a minute, I'm going to dismiss you. Is uh, Jim Giocaris in the sanctuary yet? Jim? Are you here? No, not yet? Oh, no. Very good. You know, he was planning to be here. This is an attorney that um, we're working with. This is something he's getting work with. 